0: What's good, everyone? This is episode 13 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. It's a new month, and you know what that means, new theme. The next two episodes are dedicated to respiratory medicine, starting with Dr. Shaf Khashavji, a superstar thoracic surgeon and alumnus of the IMS. Dr. Khashavji was a medical student when he heard about the world's first successful lung transplant performed right in his backyard here at the University Health Network. His interest was piqued and led him to grad school, where he helped develop the gold standard method for lung preservation. With a lab of his own, he took his expertise one step further and created the ex vivo perfusion system now being used worldwide to preserve and improve donor lungs. Today, as the Surgeon-in-Chief at the UHN and Director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program, Dr. Khashavji treads tirelessly in the pursuit of improved outcomes for patients requiring lung transplantation and reaffirms what we've heard time and time again. Medical practice and research go together in the quest for better care. You know what else go hand in hand? listening to podcasts, and reaching out to the people who make them. We always love hearing from you guys, so please keep sending us your love on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast, or via our website. Okay, deep breaths, people. The show's about to begin. So let me ask, what what does an average week look like for you?
1: Um, I have a a pretty busy week on average in that I I do surgery uh, and then have patient clinics, and I also do research. Um, Today was my research day, so I've been in the lab all day. Um, And then I uh, as well do administrative work. So my week is sort of broken up into different parts for all those different parts of my life.
0: And all this happens here at UHN?
1: Yeah, pretty much, uh, except, you know, when I'm traveling to speak or other things like sure. that.
0: Any teaching in the mix at the uni- at this university or other schools?
1: So definitely. So, uh, you know, I lecture to students uh, as well, uh, sometimes medical students and uh, undergraduate students, um, sometimes engineering uh, engineering students in, in the Institute of Biomaterials and Biomedical Engineering, um, mostly to um, surgeons in training. Uh, so that would be uh, thoracic surgeons, surgeons that are, are pretty advanced in their in their training, and fellows sure. learning lung transplantation.
0: Uh, I imagine you get invited to other schools too to give talks and network and things yes, like that. Yes,
1: I, I do a fair bit of that, and and that really crosses over that area of of practicing thoracic surgery, lung cancer work, but also uh, to the area of of the the innovations, the really innovative work we're doing. In, in lung transplantation. So, doing
0: a quick Google search, one sees the words thoracic surgeon next to your name. Is that pretty much synonymous with lung transplants or is there any other things associated with that term? No,
1: in fact, thoracic surgery is a much bigger term. It's surgery of the thorax, the Greek word, the chest, uh, and, and all its contents. In, in some countries, like the United States, it includes surgery of the heart. Um, in, in most other countries, it includes it's other than the heart. You can't sort of operate on the lung without operating on the heart, but it's sort of where the lines have drawn. But thoracic surgery, uh, you know, by and large is lung surgery, esophageal, chest wall, and lung transplantation.
0: A lung transplantation being sort of your, your specialty, your Even bread and butter, if you will. And,
1: and My specialty and my particular area of interest, but it, it is a sort of... Um, A smaller part of all of thoracic surgery, like not everybody does lung transplant. Almost every thoracic surgeon would do lung cancer surgery.
0: And it's interesting, we're doing this, we're conducting this interview right out of your office on Elizabeth Street, and uh, that's relevant, I think, because uh, lung transplantation has historic roots in Toronto. Is that true?
1: Right. No, in fact, this hospital that we're sitting in was the site of the first successful lung transplant in the world. And that happened when? I was in third-year medical school at University of Toronto when I heard that on the radio. And, uh, I mean, it was it was very remarkable because, you know, I heard about it. It sounded kind of cool, and I sort of, okay, that's cool, and dismissed it, sort of. Uh, I came to deciding which uh, school to go to for residency and, and chose the University of Toronto over others, partly because of the innovation that happens here and the people you meet and run into, and what the the sheer breadth of what's going on in all the specialties. And I was remarkable that when I was a junior resident in general surgery, rotating through my surgical rotations, I got, a, I got a assigned to the thoracic surgery service, and one night when I was on call, they were doing the first double lung transplant in the world. And so I got to witness that just by being present here, and it totally shaped my life. I mean, it brought back that 1983 comment I'd heard on the radio when I was in medical school, but also realized, like, this is absolutely amazing. And and all the things that you would think about is, well, heart transplant was done in the 50s and kidney transplant, like, why did it take so long to have lung transplant happen until 1986? And really asking those questions and seeing how difficult it was, what a challenge it is to preserve the lung and to transplant it and hook it up, uh, sort of enticed me to like, boy, th- there's work to be done here, there, and and it's it's very exciting when you see someone that that literally can't breathe. Like if you think of the how horrible it must be to not be able to breathe, and then you do an operation, you give them new lungs, and they're out playing tennis or something. It's it's just miraculous. So. That that appealed to me, and it appealed to me in that there was—I'd always had a scientific mind and wanted to do research. Uh, I may not have exactly understood what research meant at the time, but but certainly make things better, find solutions to things we don't have the answers to, and and so my project was: can you preserve? Figure out a way to preserve the lung, because right now the way they did it was take the lungs out of one out of the donor and put it into the recipient right next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we needed to figure out a, a way to preserve lungs longer. And my mentor was Joel Cooper, and and I was working in his lab. And that was my project. And, and I was able, with that project, to come up with a preservation technique that became the world standard. So we contributed to the field, to making lung transplantation safer, making it possible.
0: Absolutely. You know, so, so what is it about the lung then that makes it so difficult to preserve compared to another organ?
1: So if you look at the lung, it, it's a very fragile organ. It's, it's, got very, uh, it's made of billions of air sacs that are very thin-walled, single layer of, of airway cells, single layer of epi- uh, endothelial cells or blood vessels coursing through it, and then they're ventilated with air tubes. And so gas exchange has to happen at that level. And and uh, it has to be very thin so that gases can diffuse. But that makes it very fragile. And if you touch a lung, it's soft, like a very soft sponge. Mm-hmm. And and when it loses its blood supply, the lung dies mm-hmm. in about 20 minutes. So it, it, it's very, um, very fragile. The other part of the lung is that the airway, and this was the Achilles heel of the transplant operation, is the airway of the lung has a dual blood supply it's got the bronchial artery supply that comes from the aorta and it's got the pulmonary arterial supply that flows backwards to the airways from the lung and when you transplant the lung you really don't hook up the bronchial circulation so the lung is totally dependent on half its blood supply basically at the hookup of the airway and if you don't preserve the lung well i mean the key understanding for us is if you preserve the lung well you preserve the retrograde blood flow better, and your airway won't fall apart. Right. Up until 1983, every patient died, not because they couldn't hook up a lung, but 10 to 14 days to 18 days after the transplant, the airway would fall apart and the patient would die.
0: So what was different about your method that made it the gold standard?
1: We, we figured out how to address specific issues for that fragile organ that is the lung and to preserve the microcirculation people weren't focusing on that they focused on the just can you keep just flush the whole organ can you treat it like you treat the kidney and that sort of thing well it it needed a special kind of solution better attention to microcirculatory preservation and then we're got over that hurdle
0: and i would have to think that most uh, donor lungs that you receive in the hospital is it the vast majority that probably aren't viable or, or have right. some issues with compatibility with uh, the recipient?
1: Right. So, so uh, of, of all multi-organ donors that are offered to us um, worldwide, 85% are turned down because you need to make an assessment of that organ to know that it's going to be safe to transplant, meet certain parameters, because if it doesn't work, usually your patient will die. So, again, a big part of our research has been going through that next step, is if if the lung isn't adequate for transplant, can we figure out ways to make it better? When you think of preservation, the concept is you you cool the organ down to four degrees Celsius, you slow down metabolism to about 5% of normal, and you slow down death, but you, you've slowed down healing processes as well. You've mm-hmm. slowed down the ability. You've made it impossible to assess the organ again. So what you've got, you've got, and you preserve it at that state. And the vision was, can we actually make the organ better while we're working on it? Well, you certainly can't do much in the cold. And that's where we developed the ex vivo perfusion concept of, can we actually keep the organ at normal body temperature? And instead of worrying about it dying, actually support it, so we can interrogate it, find out what's wrong with it, uh, diagnose what's wrong with it, treat it, and then confirm that it's okay. And that's sort of a precision medicine approach to the organ, like we treat patients today. So um, that's where I developed the ex vivo platform. Uh, and as you know, Marcelo Seppel was a fellow in the lab with me at the time. That's and, right. And the task I gave him was like, We've got to figure out a way to preserve a lung, perfuse it at 37 degrees for 12 hours outside the body. You know, and, and through his master's thesis work, we achieved that. You and know, this
0: would have been maybe a decade and a half later, in the early 2000s. Yeah,
1: like it that. was. It was about 2005, mm-hmm. 2000, uh, 2005 yeah, and six. But it, you know, it was a struggle, and we tried blood perfusion. We tried all kinds of different pumps and ventilators and things, and. And every time, I mean, Marcelo would, you know, the, the lung turned to mud. It was, didn't work, didn't work. And then one day, you know, we kept, you know, little changes, tweaking the system. Again, putting together all the principles that we knew about um, the um, what was protective of the lung, the best way to ventilate the lung, the best way to perfuse the lung, the ideal temperature, the ideal perfusate. Um, blood cells tend to get damaged and, and activated and damaged in in Circuits, And then that damages the lung, which is very fragile again. And what
0: is lung ventilation, lung perfusion?
1: So lung ventilation is actually the breathing act of the lung. So ventilation is air moving in and out of the lung. And perfusion is, is the blood going through the pulmonary artery, through the lung. It goes into capillaries, which are in the walls of the alveoli. That's where gas exchange occurs. And then the blood flows back to the heart. So there's a, a, an innate interaction between perfusion and ventilation in your body, your heart and lung work together actually, and and with the rhythm of heartbeat plus the rhythm of breathing, uh, adjusting how flow goes on in the lung, and we developed a system to actually recapitulate that.
0: And that's that large machine that one would see if they watched that TED Talk.
1: That's right. Well, that large machine was was uh, was actually a mistake, but but it ended up being huge. Oh, was that right? Well, you know, we, we we originally approached a company to build it and then when they thought they had all they needed from us, they ran off and built it by <sighs> themselves and oh, they no. showed up with this fridge and they're like, well, "What am I going to do with that?" <laughs> So so I, I actually have never used that machine clinically, mm-hmm. but we have since developed a, a, a smaller, better version, easier-to-use version, exactly in translating our research step-by-step step from, from what we do in the research lab to the bedside.
0: And is that machine being used elsewhere as well? So, so right machine?
1: now, the Toronto technique, we have a hybrid form of different machine parts, ventilators, perfusion pumps, and so on, and monitors put together. And that's how we do it. We've done 290 patients that way. But um, the machine now exists and is just going into production where we've basically reduced what's a whole operating room into a small device that, that can do this and do it in an automated fashion so that it's more reliable and reproducible for and other centers to scale it around the world.
0: Yes. And just going back to your own training, uh, you mentioned that after you started your medical training, you then went on to do your graduate studies. Yes. So why did you feel it was important to combine research with practice?
1: First of all, at the University of Toronto and at, at UHN here, the importance of, of research is is stressed all along. So you get exposed to it and you realize that there's certain things that you do as a good doctor, you, you are aware of the literature, you're aware of what's being done, and then you do it that way, and that's good practice. And then you realize that certain things we do have limitations. And, and, and well, it just has never worked, or it's not possible, and the patient dies. And, and it's that part of you that says, well, why are we accepting that? Like, can we do better? Uh, you know, and, and I think that opportunity to say, okay, no one has ever survived a lung transplant before. It's been tried 44 times around the world, and every time the patient died. And, and um, what gave Joel Cooper the courage to, to say, I'm going to try the 45th one, and that was the first successful one in the world? Um, there's a video on YouTube about that called number 45. Okay. If you look at it, it is the story of the development of lung transplantation in Toronto and I think it's a, a really good short story that depicts those days but but really it was why would I want to do research is I saw exactly that that the, you know lung transplantation was an early field it, it, there was a lot to be done and and, and my god can we do it better. The mortality was 50-50 then, chance of getting out of the operating room. Today, the the survival is 97%. Great. So if you have a lung transplant today in our hospital, you have a 97% chance of getting through the surgery and out of hospital. That's that's dramatic in my career time. Hi,
2: everyone. This is your field correspondent, Hilary Chan, here. Welcome to another segment of Word on the Street, where I go around asking the public for their thoughts on certain topics discussed in the episode. Today, I'm running around campus asking people what organs they themselves would like to super or enhance, and why. Let's go.
3: So what's your name?
1: Uh, My name is Alejandro Gonzalez.
3: Okay, and what year are you in?
1: Uh, First year, I'm studying an MBA.
3: Oh, nice, okay. Uh, So this new thing in research where um, they're trying to make organs more viable or optimize uh, organs for mainly for the purpose of organ donation uh, so that organs are less likely to be rejected okay. um, and that they can fully function in the person who receives that transplant uh, for their whole life. But at the same time, you think about it, you could. it doesn't have to just apply to organ transplant. You can kind of just super your own organ. So if you could choose an organ to super, which would it be?
1: I think I, I would say um, liver okay, and maybe why? brain. Okay.
0: Uh,
1: the first one because I think that the, one of the most important things uh, could be blood purity okay. like in order to just uh, get rid of bad substances that mm-hmm. may cause um, uh, uh, that may increase your rate of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, could say uh, and the other one would be the brain because I mean who doesn't want in- enhanced memory or <laughs> yeah. uh, enhanced abilities to think about something?
3: Uh. Okay, cool. Thanks. Okay, what's your name? Isabel. If you could choose an organ or two to super or enhance, which would it be?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say the, the skin because it's okay. our way of interacting with the world. And mm-hmm. if we could um, get more information through the skin, it would be really cool.
3: Okay, so I'm here with, what's your name? Tanya. Tanya? If you could choose one organ that you have okay. um to make super for yourself, which um, would it be? I don't know. I think I would make it my heart because what? I have yeah. problems with it. Okay. Like I was born with the problems in my heart, so I would uh-huh. like to fix it like if they can. Yeah, if if this becomes um, full fledged and well implemented in healthcare, would you consider it? Uh no. <laughs> I mean, I don't trust it until it is like advanced and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. until it was right. So once it it is, well, right. So once it does, once that's fully advanced, would you try it if you could? Um, (laughs) Probably, I don't think I will be alive until it will be like super advanced. Okay, thanks. The
2: possibility of super organs seem to excite a lot of us. We may all choose different organs to optimize, but two main reasons seem to prevail in all of these answers. We seem to desire super organs less for the idea of superpowers. Rather, we seem to want super organs because we want to better support the way we live and to restore organ functions that we may have lost. Now, think about what organ you would choose to super. Until next time.
0: And you mentioned that you're sort of moving toward this trend of personalized medicine in lung transplant. Yeah, what does that look like?
1: So, so what that looks like is if if you think about how we do transplantation today, uh, in general, in the, around the world, an organ donor is identified somewhere. The donor, the recipients are on the list waiting for a heart, a liver, a kidney, pancreas, and so on, a lung, and. When the donor is identified the the potential recipients are identified, and then five lear jets fly from somewhere, all the different hospitals go to the donor hospital and retrieve the organs, cool them down so they're stopped, and they're slowly dying but and we rush back and do our transplants in the middle of the night and I think you know that's made transplant possible, but the future is not going to look like that i think I think it's a highly inefficient way to do transplantation. Huge cost, okay? Jets flying around in the middle of the night, bringing people in at night to do work, nurses and anesthetists, surgeons, everybody operating in the middle of the night, which isn't the best time anyway. And then uh, the inefficiencies of of not using all the organs you can, because you just have to make your decision out in the field in the middle of the night, and you're either going to take that organ or you're not.
0: So in this case, the lung takes priority, and as soon as the donor's available, that's when all the action happens?
1: Well, all organs. So once the donor is declared brain dead, then then the organ procurement agency, like Trillium Gift of Life, gets called, and you know there's consent and everything, and then they, they do all the basic tests on the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, pancreas, and then offer it to the transplant programs. And once they get all the organs placed, which takes a few hours they then arrange the transportation of the teams to descend on that hospital together and get everything done so usually the heart and lungs are taken out first and then the abdominal organs and and so on and then and so so it is it is an ineffic- inefficient process and particularly in in terms of lung transplantation, most lungs are not used because if you can't be sure it's good you can't use it. So when you talk about a precision medicine approach, instead of treating every lung the same way, we now have the opportunity to say, okay, this lung has an issue. I don't know what it is. I'm gonna take it, put it on a device, have it work, monitor it, and diagnose what's wrong with it. So we're developing a point-of-care test where we can look at a panel of biomarkers and say, okay, what's wrong with this lung? Okay, it's got inflammation, or it's got infection, or it's got hepatitis C, and, it, and, and we're going to treat that condition, confirm that it's treated, confirm that the lung works, and then transplant it. So I think, so one thing is we're not just going to take the organ as it is and transplant it. I think as you ask what the future is going to look like, I think we're going to look back and say, can you believe in 2016 we would just go and pick up a lung and flush it and bring it in and transplant it just like that? I think you're going to have gene-modified organs, stem cell-modified organs, and so on. I also think that you'll have organ repair centers, which will evolve very much like blood banks did. The first blood transfusion was done in a battlefield. A bleeding soldier, healthy soldier, they transfused blood directly. Probably saved a few lives. They probably killed a few people with transfusion reactions, infections, and so on. So then what happened is... Little cottage blood banks were developed. Every hospital had their own blood bank. But, you know, infectious problems would happen, storage problems, tracking it. You know, little cottage industries don't work. So you had standardized collection centers now. You have standardized processing centers. Bloods are screened for infection. it's, It's properly documented where it came from, tracked standard operating protocols, they separate all the components so that the plasma, the red cells, the cryo, the platelets are all separated. Efficiency of using is scarce resource so that the platelets go to people that need platelets and the red cell goes to people that need platelets and so on. And it's quality controlled, shelf life controlled, distributed in a timely fashion, stored properly and so on. I think that's the future of organ transplantation. We won't be all going to pick up our own organs. We're going to have them go to an organ processing center. The organs will be evaluated, tested properly, optimized, and then shipped for the patient that needs it. And And what we're going to be doing is fixing a lung that's you, fixing a lung that you won't reject for you, rather than giving you a lung and say, you know, here's a new thing suddenly plunked in your body that you weren't expecting, that it wasn't expecting, and expect the the chaos to come to acceptance and and we're we're okay.
0: And how far away are we from, say, stem cells bearing fruits? I mean, I've heard that there's a growing body of work of uh, essentially taking donor lungs, stripping away the cell matrix, and then repopulating it with the the, the donor or the recipient's own cells that they've transformed from a somatic cell, say a skin cell, into a stem cell that can then turn into a lung-specific cell.
1: Right. So, so, you know, I, I, I look at regenerative medicine as a continuum. So right now gene-modified lungs where we can transduce IL-10, a a regulatory cytokine, to prevent rejection into the organ is something I've been working on for the last decade. And we're going to do the first in man IL-10 gene therapy trial next year. So we will be transplanting gene-modified lungs into humans. And what is uh, IL-10? IL-10 is interleukin-10. And it's a cytokine that that controls uh, the immune response, both the innate immune response, which is the inflammatory response that when you put an organ in, the inflammation related to reperfusion and so on, and the acquired immune response, which is the immune response related to um, uh, rejection, recognizing foreign and so on. Now IL-10 is a very key cytokine because it actually down-regulates both of those. So big time, you need it right at the time of transplant and low levels to just keep telling the T-cells, don't attack this lung, it's me, it's us, you know. So, the lung that you find in the donor isn't expecting to be taken out, taken across the country and put into someone else. Of course. And But you know you're going to do that. So, you can pre-prepare that lung to look more like self before you put it in. And il one key place to start. There'll be others, but the concept is we'll genetically modify the lung to look more like self so it won't be rejected and and genetically modify it to handle that abnormal event of transplantation. The next step in regenerative medicine, and we're working on that in the lab, is stem cells. And can you use stem cells to repair lungs? So in our bodies, whenever an injury happens, an illness or whatever, our stem cells mobilize from peripherally circulating ones, ones from your bone marrow. They go to the site of injury and 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 repair the organ, if you will, so can we actually harness that capability of stem cells or converted induced stem cells, pluripotent cells to to repair a, a damaged lung, and that's where we're at now, so that's the next step in regenerative medicine the The final step is 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 well, if the lung is too damaged, it's irretrievable. Just strip all the cells out and build a new lung on that scaffold, right. And then the final step is take cells in a petri dish and make a lung out of it. I don't see that one happening in my lifetime. And why I is that? I, you know, the lung's a very complex organ. It's not just endothelial cells, epithelial cells, and, and, and gas and blood flowing. You know, there's there's endocrine cells in it, there's neurologic cells, there's... Uh, and and there's a structure all arranged
0: in three-dimensional space a
1: three-dimensional structure that is a very fine lattice that's fragile and so on to be able to perform that function but I do think we'll get there I do think we will but but on the way I think the gene therapy is one stem cell repair is another biohybrid organs is another one too because we have artificial lungs they they don't work as well because of the problems of exposure of blood mm. to foreign surfaces. So the concept is, can we line a machine with your own endothelial cells so your blood doesn't see foreign material? And that would be another step in that direction. So, you know, I, I think ultimately we'll get to the engineered lung from a few cells, but it is a tall order and, and, and a promise... That we shouldn't make to people right now. Should we I don't I'm not saying we shouldn't keep working on it. We must keep working on it and I think we will achieve it. But it's not something that we can deliver on in the in the very near future.
0: Uh any animal models in the mix? I've heard that uh, scientists use pig pig lungs.
1: Right. So so um one of the things we're doing again is the and and others are, are the D cell recellularization mm-hmm. work and Tom Waddell in our group is doing that. Uh, looking at at um, doing exactly that. Can you use the scaffold so you've, you're halfway built, and then work on that? And and it's complex because even just putting epithelial cells in the in the airway, uh, you you have to you realize that your 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 trachea, for example, is just a tube, but it's not just a tube. It it has a mucosal lining. It has cells with cilia that are aligned to clear mucus and they beat in in a certain frequency and in a certain direction. When you throw cells in a petri dish, they just grow all higgledy-spiggledy in every direction. So what Tom and his group have been doing, have been uh, trying to grow a trachea so that we can replace the air, the windpipe, the airway in patients with tumors or with severe injuries of the trachea and has been looking at exactly that. How can you make the tube, create its structural integrity, maintain that, Line it with cili- ciliated epithelial cells, align the ciliated cells on nano grooves in the structure. So it, it's a lot of engineering just to make the tube, let alone the whole line.
0: And I think hearing something like this for me, but also for the broader public, yeah. uh, really highlights the complexities of building an organ, right? It's right. not as simple as. You know, on Facebook, I saw a link of, in 10 years, we can 3D print an organ. Right. It, I think it's a lot more complex than exactly. that.
1: Exactly. And, and you know, the 3D printing has been overhyped again. Like, 3D printing is fantastic. I mean, there's probably a bunch of things on this desk that have been 3D printed, but they don't live and breathe. And so as the question is, okay, you can build a three-dimensional structure, and there's a lot to learn from that and mimicking nature, but how do you then put functional cells in a position where they can do what they're supposed to do, connect the blood cells with the airway things and and, and blood vessels with the airways and so on. And and then you sort of realize there's a bit more work to be done that way. Interestingly, little sheets of of cells can be 3D printed and can function. So it's a step. But put a billion of those sheets together to make a lung is the next problem.
0: Sure. Well, I think we've reached the end of our discussion. Uh, can people find you on social media?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm around on Facebook and, and uh, uh, Twitter as well.
0: What's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, at S. Kishavji.
0: Great. Dr. Kachavji, it's been a pleasure.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at rawtalkpodcast. Also, don't forget to
1: subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next
0: time, keep it
1: raw. Can you believe in 2016 we would just go and pick up a lung and flush it and bring it in and transplant it just like that?